Thank you, Alan, and good evening. You are watching ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. To watch our content, both live and on demand, all you need to do is download the app for your phone or TV at your usual app store. You can also find all our shows as podcasts wherever you download your audio programs. Now, Victorians who suffered one of the worst lockdowns in the world during the COVID pandemic have yet another reason to be furious with their state government and Premier Dan Andrews today. According to a story in The Australian, Andrews is fighting against the publication of a, quote, trove of documents detailing secret COVID-19 surveys, unquote. The surveys were of focus groups in Narrawarren and Ballarat in late 2020 when Victorians were enduring draconian lockdowns, including severe restrictions on movement and the infamous Ring of Steel around Melbourne. Police were, at the time, arresting people for being outdoors. Even one elderly woman sitting on a park bench and another young pregnant woman in her pyjamas at home for helping to organise a protest. Although Andrews had assured his, his constituents that the lockdowns were for their own good, he conducted these focus group surveys to presumably make sure the message had got through. The questions asked were about the, the specific restrictions being imposed and whether people thought the government was taking the state in the right direction. I know what I would have said. The Australians sought the results of the focus groups through freedom of information, but the crucial pages were redacted. It is now urging the pages be released before the state election in November because the reports are a matter of, quote, intense public interest. They sure are. This neatly represents why Australians are sick to death of authoritarian governments. The Victorian government used citizens' money to survey citizens and now won't let the citizens see the results. To paraphrase Dan's Labor mate, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, what are they afraid these reports will reveal? We have a cracking show for you tonight. We've got the straight-talking Canberran Stephen Senatiempo to discuss a range of topics, including the weird Scott Morrison multi-ministerial revelations and the wonderful Alexandra Marshall to discuss the causes and cures of modern neuroses. Now let's get on with the show. One of the most significant announcements in medical history was made in the United States last Thursday, and other than a flurry of attention on social media, very few people noticed it. Certainly very few people in the mainstream media. The Center for Disease Control in the United States released a statement saying, quote, the CDC's COVID prevention recommendations no longer differentiate based on a person's vaccination status because breakthrough infections occur, unquote. That reference to breakthrough infections is the CDC resorting to the doublespeak that has characterized official announcements throughout this pandemic. If the recommendations no longer differentiate between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, then the vaccines make no difference. Breakthrough infections, therefore, are not breakthroughs from one group to the other. They're just infections. This statement marks the end of one of the most divisive periods in modern history. People were sacked from their jobs. Friendships were lost and families were divided. 
even at Christmas. Now, as Christmas approaches, many of us will be faced with a new dilemma how to handle unvaccinated loved ones and whether you should spend time with them over the festive season, set next to them at Christmas dinner. Mm -hmm. So how do you find out who is vaccinated and how do you decide whether to invite them over for Christmas lunch? We've got the tips and the tricks to help you avoid awkward encounters. I know how this feels. I wasn't vaccinated enough to attend my own mother's funeral in Perth last September, even though at the time two AFL football clubs and their entourages were able to be flown into the state without much trouble. This admission that the vaccines have no effect, which skeptics have suspected all along, means all the vaccine mandates and vaccine passports and people being locked up for not complying were for nothing. How Victorian opposition leader Matthew Guy isn't turning this into a landslide victory is a mystery. Only yesterday, his opponent, Premier Dan Andrews, was boasting about a huge new Moderna mRNA vaccine manufacturing facility being built, being built in Melbourne, which would be able to produce up to 100 million doses a year. After last week's announcement from the CDC, you'd have to ask, who cares? Of course, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese was also there to wallow in the limelight, saying, quote, One of the lessons of the pandemic is that we need to be more resilient, that we need to be more self-reliant, and we need to make more things here, unquote. That's not all we learned from the pandemic. We also learned not to believe government and big pharma scare campaigns. For the darker side of this vaccine hysteria, I highly recommend the account called Jab Injuries Australia on Instagram. It is a heartbreaking roll call of people who did what they were told, in some cases reluctantly to simply keep their jobs and had their lives either ruined or painfully disrupted in the process. It's a sad reflection of modern Australia that these people were treated as collateral damage by government, the medical industry and the media and many of their compatriots because the vaccine rollout was sold to us as being for the greater good. The new CDC guidelines have revealed that to be an illusion. The politicians who so reflexively flicked the switch to authoritarian will soon, hopefully, cop the biggest backlash in electoral history. As recently as January, Australia, in one of its most shamefully spiteful moments, declined a visa to tennis player Novak Djokovic, one of the fittest men in the world, because of his unvaccinated status. Immigration Minister Alex Hawke said Djokovic's presence in Australia could cause, quote, civil unrest. That was a reasonable assumption, given the vitriol the media was whipping up against Djokovic at the time. But that hysteria wouldn't work now. At the Commonwealth Games last week, Australia's female T20 team won gold with a player who tested positive to COVID before the game. She still played and no one cared. Australians now know what skeptics instinctively knew from the start, that the pandemic was wildly exaggerated and the vaccines were not as effective as they were claimed to be. The amount of misery this caused is impossible to calculate, 
but the people responsible will not be able to plead ignorance. The Great Barrington Declaration, published in October 2020, advised governments not to lock down and instead focus on protecting the vulnerable. They ignored it. They also ignored making any cost-benefit analysis of their policies, overlooking the broken families, the teenage suicides, the stalled education of kids, the bankrupted businesses, and the elderly people who spent their dying days in solitary confinement. To some of us, Australia became a foreign country over the past two years, and our reputation around the world was seriously damaged. It's gonna take a lot to repair. Now, have you ever wondered why our children are getting fat and lazy? Well, it's because of climate change. Yep, that's right. The excuse has finally been used. According to the numpties over at CBS, quote, today's children are 30% less aerobically fit than their parents were at their age, unquote. Apparently, rising temperatures are causing children to spend more time indoors, thereby putting on weight. Really? You don't think junk food, iPhones and lockdowns have something to do with it? Of course not. It's all climate change and anyone who questions this is a climate denier. This isn't the only study to link climate change with obesity. In June, a bunch of marine biologists found that plankton produces less omega-3 fatty acids as the water warms up. These omega-3 fatty acids make their way up the food chain all the way to our seafood stores, where they provide humans with what is known as a good fat and are even sold as dietary supplements. But they won't when we cause the oceans to heat up. It's remarkable how climate change only ever causes negative effects. Wouldn't it be nice if one of these catastrophists instead predicted a dramatic increase in pleasant weather and a general increase in human contentment as a result of climate change? Why is it always the cause of disasters? Well, we've had a look into it and decided that rather than causing obesity, climate change can solve it. It works like this. Remember the experts at NASA who told us that climate change is going to reduce crop yields and send the world into food poverty unless we switch to wind turbines and solar panels? So if we don't switch to renewables, there will be less food to eat, right? Job done. Our kids will be liberated from the burden of food abundance and free to again play, go outside and play like kids always have. We might need to prize those iPhones out of their hands first though. The link between climate change and obesity is just the latest in this long list of negative outcomes. Tim Flannery told us that, quote, the rain that falls won't fill our dams, unquote. So we wasted billions of dollars building desalination plants. Politicians from both major parties told us that we needed to lock up our bushland as a carbon capture for our admissions, emissions. This led to a build-up of fuel loads that threatened to become infernos every summer. Why do we have skyrocketing power prices after failing to invest in baseload energy infrastructure? Climate change. Why are hundreds of diseases getting much worse, according to Nature magazine? Climate change. Why are our kids getting more depressed and anxious, according to The Guardian? Climate change. Why is it becoming harder for couples to conceive, according to the University of California? Climate change. 
Why are more and more refugees flooding into the West, according to the United Nations? Climate change. And why is winter colder than summer? I think you know the answer to that. Now, there are many varied ways to describe leftists these days, but happy is seldom one of them. Most of the time they are irascible, sanctimonious, angry, confused, hypocritical, and often just a little bit psychologically unhinged. It would be unkind to forget this is not entirely their fault. The breakdown of the family unit during the past few decades has robbed many of them of a secure, comforting and disciplined environment in which to grow up. As President Barack Obama admitted in his famous Father's Day speech in 2008, kids who grow up in fatherless homes are nine times more likely to drop out of school and 20 times more likely to end up in prison. To which I'd add, they are a hundred times more likely to seek consolation for their insecurities and teenage angst in fringe identity groups and meaningless undergraduate courses that will only permanently inhibit their ability to become functioning adults. The education system too has bombarded them with an overwhelming pessimism about the future of life on earth, instead of training them to develop ways of rationally responding to life's inevitable challenges. Their only coping mechanism then is emotion, by which I mean anger, which is often expressed with threats of violence and murder. My next guest says that leftist fury is so ferocious these days that it is indistinguishable from that of Islamic terrorists, one of who allegedly tried to murder British author Salman Rushdie in New York on the weekend. And worse, Given that so many of them call themselves feminists, their targets are often women. British author J.K. Rowling has copped more, more of it than most. Here's a compilation of threats made to Rowling for daring to be sceptical about, about transgenderism. They're anything but charming. These threats cannot be ignored since Rowling's, ad Rowling's address was published and shared online by the people who clearly wish her dead. These threats did not trigger the same response from Twitter that occurs when people post comments criticising lockdowns or leftist groups like Black Lives Matter, all of which seems to contribute to the ever-worsening cycle of unhappiness and mental disorders. Let's bring in Alexandra Marshall, who also knows a thing or two about these kind of threats. Alexandra, welcome to the show. It is an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, let's first talk about your first job online. You moderated a chat group for teenage girls back in the <laughs> 1990s. What was that like and did it differ from what you see online these days? Okay, so I was basically a fandom queen and I wasn't just moderating various chat communities online, I was a teenage girl. So what, it was a self-moderated environment where we were producing artistic content and writing and making videos, but also the girls were obsessed with boys on these TV shows, as you expect. And so they'd have these huge wars every afternoon and you'd wake up and there'd be bits of teenage girl everywhere and then they'd get over it. Now we're seeing a more vicious cycle, I think, with a lot more nastiness uh, arising in social media than what we used to have. I mean, before it was kind of fun and now it's sinister. Well, if it's getting worse, what do you think is driving it? So I think the basic 
concept has changed what we expect out of society. So what society values is what we instill in our children. So when I was growing up, the online community was about creativity and about sharing a love of something that we were trying to support. And now we value victimhood, we value terror, we value alarmism, and this is what our kids are reflecting when they're online. They get kudos and likes and social engagement from either pretending to be victims or from monetizing fear. And it's no surprise that it has worn off on the section of society. It started with things like trigger warnings on Tumblr and it's spread out into the mainstream education system and it has thoroughly ruined an entire generation of children. Yeah, we'll get back to victimhood in a second, but let's, let's still talk about you. You've received quite a lot of hatred yourself online, haven't you? Um, um, of course. What, what sort of hatred have you received and what did Twitter do about it? Of course, being a conservative commentator online, I am the uh, forefront, I get all the uh, hatred. And so particularly during the Black Lives Matter rally in Antifa, when they were burning city streets to the ground in America, I would get death threats set to my inbox of things like rape threats, murder, strangulation, thrown off buildings. This was all common. And you'd tell Twitter, hey, I think this might be a little bit, I don't know, dodgy. And they'd be like, nothing to see here. This is totally fine. But if I said anything about critical, about you know, um, the normal social media stuff like climate change or anything like that, well, then you'd get suspended for 12 hours at a time. You have been suspended a few <laughs> times, haven't you? Tell, tell us about why the, the most trivial times you've been suspended. I've been suspended over so many absolutely ridiculous things, but the funniest time would have to be when I told Clover Moore to go and jump in the lake when she had one of these ridiculous statements about some light show. And apparently I was encouraging self-harm, which I think Twitter was making a pretty big leap to assume that Clover Moore couldn't swim. <laughs> Well, I need to ask you, why do you persist with Twitter? You're very active on it. Why, why go on it? Whether we like it or not, Fred, social media punk companies like Twitter and Facebook have, have arisen as the new public forum. It is where ideas of society are growing, whether we, whether we engage with them or not. And so if we want to make sure that society's uh, new conversations are going in a, a healthy direction, then we have to be part of them. And if we ignore, if conservatives and centrists ignore social media, then we are going to be governed by the most radical sections of our society. And because the politicians and the media, they listen to social media because they want the votes and the clicks. And so it's up to all of us to pay attention to what is going on there. So that's why I'm on there. I believe in the discussion. Well, you're certainly taking one for the team. <laughs> I mean, couldn't we? Couldn't conservatives just stay off and leave them all to it? That was the opinion taken by conservatives for the last five years. If we ignore the complete craziness of this uh, alarmist youth, then that will go away. But the truth is, the only way to protect society against this acceleration towards madness is to drag their ideas out into the public forum and to challenge them and ridicule them so that they stop gaining traction because they've been left to grow in the shadows of social media. And now they're in our parliament, they're in our politics. They're, they become world policy in some cases, and that's because we ignored them. We thought they'd be safe there in social media, but it wasn't. Okay, let's talk about another aspect of modern neuroses. There was a study released by University College London last month that found that depression, which of course is intricately related to all this, is not caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain, specifically a deficiency of a chemical called serotonin. The authors of the study said, quote, the serotonin theory of depression 
has been one of the most influential and extensively researched biological theories of the origins of depression. Our study shows that this view is not supported by scientific evidence. It also calls into question the basis for the use of antidepressants." Unquote. Now, other, other experts have come out in defense of antidepressants, which do seem to work in some instances. But the important thing here is that Australians are turning to these antidepressants in record numbers. According to the report, a report by the ABC this year, Australian consumption of antidepressants has doubled in 10 years, and we have the second highest rate of use in the OECD. Alexandra, what is making Australians so unhappy and should they seek something other than pharmaceuticals to feel better? Oh, I've actually got two answers to this question because I think there are two different groups of people who are depressed in Australia. First of all, we have uh, ordinary people where it's almost entirely circumstantial where something happens to you, uh, particularly we saw with farmers and droughts where their circumstance made them depressed. And once you become depressed, then your chemical balances can change. It's a reaction to your emotional state and not a cause of it. I mean, this has been obvious for decades. Now, in that kind of circumstance, giving people drugs is not going to solve the problem. But I remember when the drought was on as a farmer myself, they were shipping in mental health advocates to these farmers when the farmers were saying, can you bring us feed and water? That's what we actually require to make ourselves feel better. It's the same thing in, in society where people have got problems in their life and they're trying to solve them with medication. But I will say that I think the major cause of uh, mental illness is actually this victimhood movement which is propagandizing these children into thinking that they're sick. They trick themselves into mental illnesses. And uh, after you pretend for a while, you actually develop them. And that, if you can't look at the young people today and say there's not something wrong that's been caused by their nurture rather than their physiology. We'll get back to that in a second, but let's just talk very briefly on the pharmaceutical industry. It's, it's almost built on the idea that depression can be treated with pills. Do, do you think this is a fallacy? Oh, everyone wants a quick fix of a pill, but here's what's really frustrating. People with genuine recurring pain can't get Panadol over the counter anymore because of a terrible decision by the Liberal government. But you can get any manner of these uh, pills for, uh, for uh, psychological conditions. It's almost encouraged this uh, pill popping generation, but never for the things you need them for. Always for the things that are profitable and have no end date. So things like depression, they get you on them for life. It's a lifelong problem. Whereas uh, it doesn't solve anything, but they make money off you forever. And it's a similar problem with the trans culture where they get kids hooked on medications for their entire lives. And it's not good for anybody. Yes, the medical industry, sometimes it seems that they don't actually want you to be well. They just want you to be sick enough to be prescribed medications. But this brings us to the issue of fashions within mental health, which is a strange way of looking at it, but it seems to be true. And you've written about it very well. Tell us about how striving for excellence has been replaced by victimhood. It's sort of like a fad. When I was in school, we had these things like elastics were really popular. Then we had yo-yos and then it was skipping ropes. And then it was um, those Furby do to uh, toys that a lot of parents have nightmares about still. Uh, this is the sort of fads that we had when we were at school. But now the fad is to pretend to be mentally ill. And the reason that it works is because we stopped valuing uh, being the top of your class, producing great content, and now we value being a victim, being a minority character, uh, 
category of some kind and we judge our specialness and our value on our identity. And it's not even the identity of our merit. It's the identity of how we categorize ourselves by gender, sex, and our mental disorders. This is a serious problem. We saw it begin on Tumblr where we had little trigger warnings where first of all, it was like, this fic contains rape. Okay, okay, that's a fair enough trigger warning. And now they're, they're miles long. They're longer than the, the works you're gonna read about all these trigger warnings. And it's a way of saying, I'm special because I'm offended by these in the same way those annoying people go to a restaurant and say, I can't eat dairy, I can't eat this, I can't eat that. They feel special and that has uh, translated into our, our kids, but it's more serious there because when you're a teenager, when you're a young adult, you get obsessive about things. And so these kids are play acting serious conditions in order to feel popular. Now, what does that do to the next generation? What happens when these people enter businesses in the workforce? Well, that's a good question. But also, I mean, it, it kind of harks back to what you said about pharmaceuticals. If you want to feel special, the easiest way to do it is to claim victimhood. But previously, people would only feel special by, as you say, striving for excellence. Well, the last thing that we wanted in our generation was to be perceived as weak or damaged. That was absolutely bottom of our list of things to do, right? Now, it, the pharmaceutical companies are thrilled because what's better than treating a real disorder forever, which they make money out of, it's treating invisible and non, uh, completely invented disorders. And if the disorder is invented, then it has no cure. So that is a money-making exercise forever. It's the perfect solution to a bank balance, really. So these, these pretend victims or, or victims of mental conditions are now, tell me this isn't true, Alexandra, becoming influencers on social media, turning their fake mental disorders into cash. Is that right? That's how you monetize the internet. That's, they get viewers and clicks and subscribers by putting on these performances. So some of them, I'll give you an example for viewers who aren't aware of how this works. Someone might prepare, uh, pretend to have a tick, so they like Tourette's syndrome, so they pretend to have these outbursts and they film them. Or they might have these multiple split personality disorders. So they'll introduce themselves in seven or eight different identities and then have conversations with these identities. And people come onto social media to watch this play out almost like some kind of uh, TV show really. And they subscribe and they ask them questions and there's a whole culture built around supporting and rewarding this kind of behavior. And every now and then a parent finds it and uh, comes online and drags their child off because obviously the parents are furious to find out that their kids are doing this. But the way social media works, parents might not be aware of it for years until they see what's happening. And by then it's too late. Finally, before you go, Alexandra, um, American researchers recently reached the startling conclusion that, quote, limited stress can result in cognitive benefits that may contribute to resilience. In other words, people who put themselves through challenges become better people as a result. Alexandra, are academics even, are even academics coming around to common sense in this field finally? Well, this is obvious if you think about what we are. We are animals. And so when we are stressed in situations that require immediate uh, thought to survive, we obviously up our game a little bit so that we don't fall off the cliff or get eaten by the passing bear. So 
obviously this translates to the modern world where if we're a little bit stressed, we tend to perform better and we learn better habits and it gives us clarity of thought. That is just our biology. But now we can't, we can't uh, test children because they might get upset by the exam in case they, heaven forbid, don't pass. And that has ruined the competition that is so healthy with our former society. Thank you, Alexandra. Your participation prize is at the door. No. <laughs> oh, I want a medal, not a participation award. What's going on? Thanks again for your time, Alexandra. Always good to talk to you. Now, it's difficult for even the most ardent monarchist not to feel a slight tinge of republicanism today after hearing that the former Prime Minister Scott Morrison was sworn in by Governor-General David Hurley as the Health, Finance and Resources Minister in early 2020, while other MPs in his government also held those positions. This was done in secret, not only from the public, but from the ministers themselves. This is the strangest contra constitutional controversy since the sacking of the Whitlam government in 1975. Why was the Prime Minister secretly awarding ministerial powers to himself and why was the Governor-General going along with it? Some, Cam some Canberra commentators are saying that Morrison was trying to protect himself against factionalism within his own government, which is clearly not going to pass the pub test. Others say no harm was done because he was only assuming those powers in preparation for an unprecedented pandemic. Again, this doesn't bear scrutiny. One of those ministers, Keith Pitt, discovered Morrison had assumed his portfolio of resources when Morrison arbitrarily cancelled Asset Energy's application to continue its licence to explore for gas off the coast between Sydney and Newcastle. This is hardly related to the pandemic, but it is related to Morrison's campaign to have his government re-elected in May this year. You will recall we covered the Asset Energy story last week. The licence was kiboshed by Morrison, a move that his rival Anthony Albanese unequivocally agreed with early this year because the voters in the adjacent swinging seats were adamantly opposed to the proposal. They were opposed on two grounds. That a leak from the well, which is to say a leak of gas, would spoil their precious beaches, and that the well rig would be an eyesore ruining some of the most expensive coastal views in Australia. Now that opposition has come back to bite them because Anthony Albanese's incoming Labor government is instead proposing a forest of 200 windmills just off the beach at Newcastle, which would make the silhouette of a single distant gas rig look like a JMW Turner seascape. We are, by the way, grateful to the Sydney Morning Herald and The Australian for following up our coverage of this issue last week. This is a story that has a bit of everything, and to make sense of it all, let's bring in Stephen Senatiempo, the excellent host of The Breakfast Shift on Canberra's 2CC, and one of the plainest speaking commentators in the country. Stephen, welcome back to ADH. Good to be with you, Fred. Stephen, first, let's, uh, let's talk about this revelation about Morrison serving himself up ministerial portfolios, which was authorised by the Governor-General. Do you think this has boosted the Republican movement? Oh, look, I'm not 100% sure about that. I, I, I look, apart from the Keith Pitt situation, I actually think it's all a bit of a beat up. I, I think it's a distraction. The current government is using this as the news story of the day and they haven't been talking about anything else whatsoever. It's almost like whatever you do, don't mention the economy. Let's try and look at the previous government. Um, I understand. I think I understand what Morrison thought he was trying to do with the health portfolio and maybe the finance portfolio. Um, 
but the Keith Pitt situation with the, the resources was a dead set stitch up to try and save a few of his factional mates uh, on those seats up there on the central coast and closer to Newcastle. There's no two ways about that. But as far as being a constitutional crisis, I don't think it is. I've spoken to a few people with a little bit more knowledge about the constitution than I have, and um, they seem to think that there is actually nothing underwater here. It might be unusual, but not um, inappropriate, for lack of a better way of putting it. Yeah, I think crisis would be overstating it, but it, 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 has, it has made people more aware of our constitution than most things other than the Republican movement, I suppose, since uh, 1975, yeah. when everyone was talking about the constitution. But speaking of the Republic, the royal family has coincidentally made a move that should endear them to Australians, in my opinion. Prince William and Kate Middleton are about to move out of Kensington Palace, the scene of all that drama between Charles and Diana back in the day, and into a relatively modest four-bedroom home in Berkshire. Stephen, the immediate successor to the throne, Prince Charles, is often touted as by Australians as the final nail in the coffin of the monarchy here. But surely the prospect of William succeeding him not long afterwards counters that, don't you think? Yeah, I think that's probably right. I mean, the concern most Republicans would have for, or most monarchists would have is that Charles lives as long as his mother has, um, which means he's going to be around for quite some time. But, yeah, look, I don't know that... I think the biggest problem with the Republican movement in Australia is the people running it. Um, now, I'm, I'm a... Well, I, well, I don't know that I'm an ardent monarchist, but I, I swing towards the monarchist side of the debate. And so long as the bloke with the red bandana is running the other side, I think we're safe. Well, let's go back to the uh, to, to this uh, um, the the PEP eleven ap application up in uh, near Newcastle, which Scott Morrison kiboshed. Morrison thought he was uh, on a winner by kiboshing the PEP eleven gas exploration project. Mm -hmm. Anthony Albanese also opposed it. The residents must have celebrated when the project was cancelled, but now the incoming yes. government has announced plans to build these windmills off Newcastle. Now, some people do think these things are attractive because they symbolise our efforts to reduce our carbon dioxide emissions. But it's difficult to imagine that most people don't think they're anything but ugly. Where do you stand on this, Stephen? Did the protesters in yeah, those coastal electrics get... Go on. Well, there's a, a, a big wind farm um, just across the border in New South Wales that you can see whenever you drive down the federal highway, and they are pretty ordinary. They do destroy a pretty good view. Um, but look, I, I I would caution these people in these electorates not to worry too much because I don't think these things are ever going to get built. Um, look, it would be just, they're just desserts if they did. But look, I think this government's going to find out very, very quickly that it's got a lot of other priorities rather than building a bunch of wind turbines off the coast. Uh, can you imagine what it's going to cost to do this? Um, you know, it's, it, they're expensive enough to build on land, let alone out in the middle of the water. Well, let's switch to Canberra now. There is an inquiry about Canberra firefighters who refused to enter a home mm. to rescue a sick young person for fear of catching COVID. The United Firefighters Union has accused the Canberra Times of beating up this story. Stephen, what's really going on? Yeah, look, I, I it, it's difficult to get to the bottom of this. If you read what the Firefighters Union is actually saying, they're saying, uh, leave them alone because they can't defend themselves, these particular firefighters. So to get to the bottom of what actually happened is difficult. But I think it, it points to a broader problem we have here in Canberra, and that is that all of our frontline emergency service workers are, so, are under so much pressure 
um, that they're failing at every opportunity. I mean, our hospital system is the worst in the country, bar none. Our nurses and midwives are, are gotten to the point. There was a story I saw last week where one nurse said she's afraid to take a lunch break because if she walks down the hall to the lunchroom, she might have to walk past the dead body that's been left in the hallway. I mean, this is the kind of pressure these people are under. And my understanding is that the firefighters are, um, when they assist ambulance personnel, they're supposed to wear full pre protective gear, PPE. Um, whether or not they actually had access to it would be the question I would ask first, because they're being, they're, they're being left deficient in every other aspect. But I think we've gotten to the point now where, we, I mean, our police, we have the lowest number of police per capita uh, anywhere in the country. Our firefighters were being sent out to paramedic calls because there wasn't enough paramedics and ambos at one stage. I think they've just got to the point where they've said, we've had enough. And and to a point they've given up, which, you know, I, I guess you would expect people with a vocation in that area to be a little bit better than that. But at the end of the day, they're only human. And this is a, a sheet home is another failure of Canberra City Council. Well, you mentioned the council. Who's causing this? What What's the, what's the cause behind all this uh, pressure? Just bad management, really bad management from the ACT government. They ripped, um, you know, I mean, for the health, the health system's a classic example. They ripped about $2 billion out of it to build a tram that goes nowhere, and now they're going to build a second stage of the tram. Um, it, this, this government has just been mismanaging the finances and uh, uh, would rather invest in things like making electric car, you know, making petrol cars illegal and making sure that we've got a rainbow roundabout in Braddon rather than actually investing in the things that, Canberrans need. I mean, uh, we, we've got a story, we had a story here where there, I mean, there's something like 70 schools in Canberra that have asbestos and lead paint in them. There was one school where the kids couldn't go to the bathroom because the taps were rusted shut and they couldn't wash their hands afterwards. I mean, this is the kind of mismanagement that goes on here. So it's it's simply when it comes to firefighters, there's just not enough of them because this government doesn't have the money to invest in them. Well, let's talk about another uh, another council elsewhere in the country, uh, down in Tasmania. The Hobart City Council has voted seven to four yes. to remove a statue of former Premier William Crowther from the city's Franklin Square. Lord Mayor Anna Reynolds said Australians, quote, want to have a much more honest and brave conversation about our colonial history, unquote. Stephen, what's the relationship between removing a statue and a so-called brave conversation about our past? Well, how do you have a brave conversation if you remove part of the conversation, which is effectively what they're doing? But aren't they just moving it somewhere else? So are they going to you know, upset another group of people with this statue that apparently they find offensive? And my understanding is that Crowther was a bit of a nothing anyway. It didn't really do much. So I, I don't know who's particularly offended by it. Well, there's talk from, from Hobart that this should be spreading around the country. What sort of statues should they take down in Canberra? There's plenty of them. Yeah, I, well, we've got this, um, this owl that looks like a male appendage around the corner from my place. We could probably do away with that pretty soon. <laughs> okay, look, the, the, the Hobart Council hired a public relations company to announce the result of the vote, which was accidentally released prematurely. This might suggest that there was some sort of backroom deal going on before the vote actually went down. Stephen, why is it that most sanctimonious people always seem to be the least suitable for elected office? I, if I, look, that's the million dollar question, Fred. I, I think we've gotten to the point now where our public officials have such a poor reputation that quality people just don't want to put themselves through that. So I, I guess we're, you know, we're, we're a product of our own environment and 
Um, I always say we get the government we deserve and our politicians in a democracy are a reflection of us, not the other way around. And maybe we need to pull our own socks up and lift our own game if we expect better representation. And just finally, before you go, Stephen, um, we always love to uh, get get the uh, get our, our finger on the pulse from Canberra. What are your listeners talking about this week? Um, well, there's lots going on at the moment. The uh, opposition down here, the government is on the nose and people have decided, I think, finally woken up to the fact that after 20 years, they're not serving as well. Unfortunately, the opposition just sort of uh, like to resort to stunts. So they moved a motion of no confidence in the chief minister this morning that had no hope of getting up, um, all because his coalition partners have disagreed to one line item in his budget that he handed down. Um, there's that. There's um, um, The biggest issue at the moment is potholes. It's amazing how many people are concerned about the number of potholes. 3,000-odd potholes have been reported uh, to the ACT government in the last six months, and they fixed 100 of them. Three th- 100 out of 3,000. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they, they promised in the lead up to the last election they'd fix all of them. It didn't happen. Well, that's one way to stop people driving, I suppose, Stephen. <laughs> Stephen, as always, thanks for your time. Good to talk to you, Fred. See you next week. That's Stephen Senatiempo, the plain speaking host of the breakfast shift on Canberra's 2CC. Now, before I go, you might have seen that the Tavistock Centre in Britain, one of the largest gender reassignment clinics in the world, has announced plans to close down. It's been operating since 1989 and had treated thousands of kids with puberty blockers and other procedures to cure gender dysphoria. Some psychologists warned early on during this craze for reassignment that the condition that caused patients to imagine they were born in the wrong body was a symptom of a different psychological condition and the cure for which was not to operate on the kid's genitals or block his or her puberty. There's now talk of a class action lawsuit against Tavistock because it rushed some kids into medical procedures and did so with allegedly improper diagnosis. The people offering similar procedures in Australia might like to take notice. On a more positive note, Scott Morrison this afternoon explained why he awarded himself a few bonus ministries at the start of the pandemic. In a Facebook post, he says he was worried about his ministers being struck down by the virus, so took on the burden himself just in case. He said, quote, Thankfully, it was not necessary for me to trigger use of any of these powers. In the event that I would have to use such powers, I would have done so disclosing the authority by which I was making such decisions. The authority was pre-approved to ensure there would be no delay in being able to make decisions or take actions should the need arise. Given the significant nature of many of these powers, I considered this to be a prudent and responsible action as Prime Minister." Well, that probably puts an end to this strange revelation, but it won't stop ordinary people like you and me wondering what the hell goes on in Parliament House sometimes. And that's it from me. Thanks for watching. And remember, tell your friends, download the ADH app to their phones and televisions where you can watch all our content live and on demand. And it's free. And I'll see you tomorrow night at nine o'clock. Good night.